Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone-Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Annie Highwater. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies in Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Hi, everyone. This is Laurie McDougall on Coming Up for Air. Tonight, we have a special topic and we have a special guest. Our uh, guest tonight is going to be Kayla Solomon. And Kayla has a support group on the Allies in Recovery website on Wednesday nights. Um, I think it's 6.30 Eastern Standard Time. Is that correct, Kayla? Yes, it is. Yep, 6.30. So Kayla and I are going to be talking tonight about what the differences are between Al-Anon, Naranon, and CRAFT, Community Reinforcement and Family Training. But before we launch into that topic, um, let me just ask Kayla, Kayla, can you just tell us, like, um, one, how did you... How did you get connected with Dominique? How did you get connected with the Allies website? And what brought you to um, decide to, to open up a support group? Well, what's interesting is that I actually trained in craft with Dominique when she trained years and years ago. And the idea was that I was going to be, you know, like be one of the people that she could refer to because I'm a clinician in the area. So she was gonna, she wanted me to get trained so that she could refer family members to uh, to see me. And what was interesting is my first reaction after I did it is I'm a substance use counselor. You know, I usually work with people who are dealing with the actual addiction. And so I was like, I don't know if I this is a good fit for me. I don't think this, this is a great idea. And then she would refer to me, but most of the time I was I was actually getting the referrals of the the substance abuse, the substance users. And then what happened was last year, I was working with a client and I was actually involved with his parents and my client overdosed. And I, that's when I realized I have to do something with the family members. It's, there's so much impact on the family members. I called Dominique and I said, you know, is there a way that we could do, that I could do something with you? Maybe we could do a group or something like that. And that's when we began the group. Very good. Very good. Well, so you and I have actually met, we met one other time before this. Um, so listeners may be a little surprised at that, that we have not met uh, before, but we met one time before this and we kind of launched into this conversation about Al-Anon, Naranon, and Craft. So t- tonight's topic is how are they different? And I think this is a really, really important topic because As you know, I also have, I have, um, I don't call them support groups, I call them educational groups, because my groups look very different than your traditional support group. But I hear this all the time. Oh, oh, you mean you have a group, you know, like Al-Anon or Naranon? And I'm like, no, no, actually very different than Al-Anon and Naranon. Um, So what's your take on it? What do you, what do you, what do you see as the differences between craft and then Al-Anon and Naranon? Well, th- th- I was thinking about this and the first thought I had is that 
that Al-Anon and Aranon have less structure, but that's not a true statement. They actually have a lot of structure, just a very different structure. They're based on the 12 steps. Um, they're based on getting a sponsor. Uh, they, this is Naranon and Al-Anon. Um, there's no crosstalk. That when you go into the meetings, there's absolutely no advice given. And it's really based on the idea of um, how can you live with being in, in the environment or knowing that somebody that you know and love is dealing with addiction. Um, and and that, that's how I, I actually have been thinking about this a lot. Like, so what, how would you describe Al-Anon and Aranon in your words? That's a good question. How would I describe Al-Anon and Aranon? So Al-Anon and Aranon to me is, it's a, it is a support group. That's really what it is. And it's all about the family member or the friend. So it's not about, it's about focusing on the individual and improving and helping to heal the individual um and kind of how do i describe it it's not necessarily about how to interact with your loved one right it's about focusing on you and healing yourself which is a really important piece really a huge important piece and i have attended al-anon and Aranon meetings um i did and, and in fact um i know you might not know this but i um, originally my son had overdosed and, um, I found him. So it was a very traumatic experience and it put me into a really major depression. And, um, I remember being on the couch and I was on the couch <laughs> and my husband came in and I had left my job um, my son had gone off to treatment and I was on the couch and I really was at the time I was experiencing depression and I was also experiencing PTSD but I undiagnosed and I didn't know really that I had PTSD I thought depression definitely um, but I remember my husband coming in and saying um, you know, what's, what's the deal? And me saying, well, you know what? I, I promise I got, I got it all figured out. I promise if at the end of six months, if I can't get off the couch, I'll go get professional help <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'll do something about it. And he was like, six months, like, what do you mean six months? And I was like, yeah. And, and really honest and truthfully, if you would, put the couch in the driveway in the middle of a snowstorm I probably would have said okay but I'm not getting up right. I'm still gonna stay here right um but then at the end of six months I think I have like high dopamine levels because I can't seem to stay down um <clears throat> and I at the end of six months I did go and get professional help that was my first step but my second step was i decided to do exactly what they were telling my son to do um and they were telling him 90 meetings in 90 days so i decided i would do 90 meetings in 90 days <clears throat> and i think i've hit every naranon alanon meeting there is between the states of connecticut massachusetts and rhode island wow so and i am forever grateful um, for, 
for the things that Al-Anon and Naranon gave me um, because it really, it did help with a lot of um, internal healing. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and it's, it's, it's funny that you say that about PTSD because that's one of the things we talk about in the group all the time is every single person that's a member of that group has PTSD. Not necessarily the disorder part of it, but they have post-traumatic stress. There is no way that you could be involved with somebody who's dealing with addiction and not have post-traumatic stress. Absolutely no way. It's trauma all the time because it's about the unpredictable. It's about nothing that you do is right. It's about not having it control. Also, a lot of times you're being assaulted verbally. You're being blamed or... The, the responsibility is put on you. And if you're a parent or a loved one, it's very hard not to take that on. So I, that's the work. The work is I, how do you not become a sponge for somebody else's illness? And, I, and I don't necessarily mean the addiction because the other thing that's very, very important for people to know is that there are very few people that have active substance use disorders that do not have a mental health disorder as well. Right. Oh, we totally agree with that. Um, I, I barely see anybody that doesn't have co-occurring disorders. I, I don't. Yeah, <laughs> I totally agree. And I do think I, eventually I got, I did get diagnosed with PTSD, with full-on PTSD, and I spent a long time trying to control, um, you know, the, the symptoms of PTSD. But it was when I continually had nightmares that I couldn't I couldn't control them I um and it was like okay then I think I need something extra I actually did end up going on I think it was Celexa I went on an yep. anti <clears throat> anti-anxiety antidepressant and I was on on it for about a good year and it did help I and I definitely needed it um but just getting back to, I'm also very grateful that I had those meetings uh, in order to attend because it did help. It helped a lot with that. Um, but I can also tell you that there were some things that were missing. Um, and that's how I ended up finding craft. And I often describe, you know, when people talk to me or ask me questions about Al-Anon and Naranon, and allies in recovery or rest meetings and craft. Um, <clears throat> I often will say, Al-Anon and Naranon tells me what I should do. Craft gives me actual skills yes. for me to apply it. Right, right. So for me, that's that's the, I, I always say like craft gives me, I call them tangible things even though they're not so tangible, but they're more like, you know, I would always hear things like, well, there's nothing you can do, you know, and I, I am of the belief that actually there's always something I can do. It right. might not be what I want. Right. <laughs> right. And it not, it might not be the piece that I want to do. Right. Um, or, or like all of this anecdotal, I think there's a lot of anecdotal information in Al-Anon and Naranon, and um, that was troubling for me sometimes uh, because I thought, yes, it's true, and no, it's not true. Um, and so I think craft kind of filled in that space for me. 
a little bit, if that makes sense. Yes, and and I, I when I'm listening to you, what I'm thinking is that the the foundation of the twelve steps is powerlessness over al uh, the alcohol or whatever the substance is, and I feel like the work of craft is to take your power back. Yep. Um, and and you can't take your power if you don't have anything to do. Not doing something doesn't give you power. That just makes you powerless. And the essential aspect of powerfulness, um, or as I call the power position in craft, is that you are not controlling the other person at all. You will never do that. That has to be off the table. But I think what's ha what happens is when you're dealing with somebody who's got issues with substances, you feel completely out of control. And so often loved ones amp up their attempts at control. Worst possible thing that you could do because that controlling part of it is what the rebelliousness is. And then they fight against you, even if they, your loved one fights, even if they want what you're asking them to do, but they have to fight because we're all naturally rebellious. So what I feel like craft does is gives you a set of behaviors to look at. A set, uh, you get to make choices. You get to analyze the situation and look at what your part of it is. And then that's your power position. And again, it's like what you said, Lori, it's not that you like it. It's not like you like having somebody using in your house, but how you react to it may or may not change their, first of all, it does change the relationship, it does. but the point is to change the use. Right. And it does. It, it, the, the one thing about craft is, is craft, although craft is also very, very focused on not the person with substance use disorder. Right. It's focused on the people around the person with substance use disorder. And um, that's the other, I, I agree with you, This the powerlessness of um, you know, accepting that you're powerless versus gaining your power back, yeah. right? And also to me, that's a very strength-based, type and that's what I need. I need to, okay, I know what I can't do. I know what I'm incapable of doing, which by the way, I also happen to think that a lot of these things, um, and you're probably going to laugh at me a little bit, but a lot of these things we think are so unique to substance use disorder are not so unique. They're not, they're, they're, um, pretty common and many other illnesses, chronic illnesses, even for family members. So I'm, I'm just thinking of, um, I'm thinking of someone like a child with cancer, right? As a family member, you feel totally helpless and you have no control over the illness. The right. only, right, you don't, you don't have any control over it. And in fact, on some level, you don't even have control over the choice of of treatment or the right and then also there's this um so so what do we do as family members we you know we we join support groups and we what are the things that we can do well we can look for different treatments and and all of these things are attempts at controlling the situation right right, right? but it's also doing something because of having this need to help in some way right and and i call it like this illusion and and i do believe this way about myself having this illusion that i do have some control in some way um 
which can be good and can be bad. Right? <laughs> you can play two roles there, but um, but I just think we we are responding to substance use disorder the same way other family members respond to other chronic illnesses, even with adult children, um, even siblings. Like, how often do you have like a chronically ill um, child? And the siblings get angry because that child takes a lot of the attention away and exactly. and those children are neglected compared to you know um so so for me craft kind of the you know coming to this acceptance um that i'm not i'm not this illness is not so different than other things that other families are um dealing with I just maybe in my own head have made it 10 times worse than it is, if that makes sense. Although I, I also think that, um, the, and Dominique and I talked about this the other day, I think there's different levels of experience that you have with substance use disorder. Um, so that, that makes things uh, more intense. Not that anybody is aware of it. So what I mean by that is you've got people that have a child that is struggling with substance use disorder and yes, they, they are experienced trauma and stress and, but then you've also got families that have witnessed an overdose. Yes. You know, right. And then you've got families that have witnessed multiple overdoses and maybe families that have had to administer Narcan in right. an overdose. And then you've got another, another group out of that. You've got families that have lost a loved one. And then right. families who's got a, who have a loved one on the street and they're doing risky behaviors on the street. And added, right, right. Yeah. And then you've got, you've got families that have more than one adult children. Yes. Right. So, um, but just kind of, we're kind of veering off a little bit, but just kind of bringing it back to, you know, craft really kind of, I guess that's, that's what craft does for me. Gives me a structure to make decisions. Right. And, and what the interesting thing about being a therapist participating with craft is that, you know, I, one of the struggles I have is using the terminology of craft because it's so much my language, but I don't use the same terminology. There's the communication pieces. Like how do you actually communicate with your loved one in a positive and constructive way? How do you use I statements? How do you know when you're going to have a conversation? Because you're thinking about those things in advance with craft. It's not that, you know, you're, I would say that what's different with craft is that you're increasing your level of awareness of con and consciousness so that you, and my belief is when you're unconscious, you lose choice. You don't have control over what you're going to do. When you have awareness and consciousness, you then add choice to your menu so that you get to decide when you're gonna have a conversation. You're gonna rehearse the things that you may or may not say at those times. You're gonna be looking at rewarding the positive behaviors and walking away from the negative so that you're not getting hooked. And the interesting thing in my group is that we talk all the time because it's not that, okay, you have all this information and you're gonna go do it because welcome to being a human being, that's not what happens. That's not how it works. But what happens is that you then have a practice that you can engage in that gets you closer and closer to the outcome that you're looking for. And I also believe that the modeling of doing something that's so difficult 
and something that's so unnatural in so many ways, which is stepping back, is a model so that the person who's dealing with the with the substance use gets to see you changing and it gives them hope that people can change. This podcast is produced in partnership with Allies in Recovery. Join today and begin our self-guided e-learning program. From the comfort of your own home and at your own pace, you will learn how to shepherd your loved one toward treatment and long-term recovery. Our in-house experts, led by Dominique Simone Levine, also provide personalized guidance to members. Learn more at alliesinrecovery.net and join today. I often say that um, I know Al-Anon and Naranon focuses on just just the individual that's struggling, right? Not the person with substance use disorder. Craft does too, and actually, craft gives you the skills to make. To I always will say this: learning the craft skills made me a better person and helped me heal. Yes. And I didn't realize it until I was actually doing it that like I would get this added satisfaction. Like I would have, I know this sounds crazy, but I, I started doing this thing with my son and, and this was very early on and I was just starting out with craft and, um, and I couldn't figure out how to, how to break the conversation so I could get myself some space so I could think sort of thing, right? And, um, and I was locked in a car with him, driving him around and he wanted, right. And I was like, oh my God, right. This is so awful. And he, um, he wanted to go to these meetings now in, in, um, in this town, actually it's a city near where I live in, and it's a really tough, tough city. And I knew why he wanted to go to those meetings. He wanted to go there, uh, to get his drugs. And um, I had already warned him months ago, I would never take him to those meetings. In fact, I had said, you got six months with no meetings without leaving the house. You can do them online, you can do, you know, you can do these other things, but at six months, we'll talk about meetings, but never ever am I bringing you to those other meetings because I know about them and I know about him, but, um, he was trying really hard to convince me, right? And I, I kept doing this thing. I was like, okay, you need space. You need to think, you need to think. Um, and so I started with, oh yes, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Yes, no, mm-hmm. no, I don't know. And then it, it got amped up, right? And he's getting angrier and angry at me. And I was like, okay, okay, what are you gonna do? Put it on him, put it on him. Well, yeah, that sounds difficult. What are you going to do about it? Right. I kept, kept doing that. And he was getting, oh, he was steaming mad. And he starts yelling at me and he starts telling me, I'm incredibly judgmental. You're so judgmental. You're a witch with a B, not a W. Right. Uh, just calling me names. And then he, he looks at me and he goes, and you know what? I keep telling dad this, but you belong in a mental hospital. You, you're the sick one. And I thought, I was like, you know what? Just agree with them. Just, just see what, and I go, and I go, I looked at him, I go, you know what? You're right. You're right. I do. And a mental hospital sounds wonderful right now. I might get three meals a day, someone else cooking for me and changing my sheets. (laughs) And he, I I saw it. It was like it, I popped the bubble. (laughs) 
I, his balloon burst and he knew I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to do it. I wasn't going to do it. And, and he was like, well, bring me to this other meeting. And I brought him there. Sure enough, he looked in the window. Nobody that he knew was in there and I want to go home. And that was it. And I can remember, um, these were like some, some things that I was learning in craft and it was like, okay, okay, you've got to get space to, to figure out how to talk. You, you, you're not good at communicating with him right now. So find a way to get that space, find a way to get that space. And, um, for him, it was probably one of the worst things that could have happened because I was so, I felt so good about myself and so excited that it was like, oh, you'll never, you'll never win again. <laughs> Those days are over. Yeah. Two things that you used. One was you used humor, which is gigantic. Okay. Because you're not making fun of him because that's not humor. So let me be clear about that. Right. But you're taking what he says and what humor is, is taking the data that that comes in and you turn it around and look at it from a different direction and you just start pointing out this other direction like, yep, that makes sense. And the other thing that you did was what I call the paradoxical intervention, which is when somebody's trying to fight with you, you agree with them and, and you make them right because they can't keep, if you're like, you're right, you know, you're right. I am judgmental. It is my fault and everything and but what i do is i learned this with working with people who are borderline um is that i started taking what they would say to me but i would amp it up because they're trying to get make me wrong and so I'm like you know i am the worst therapist that you ever met i don't understand why you're still seeing me i don't understand how you're still alive based on the fact that i'm your therapist and then what happens is i'm hoping that they walk away and what they say to me is oh no no you're the best therapist yeah. i've ever had i'm like <laughs> Right. They taught me that it's like right. or somebody who's calling me and wants to kill themselves. If I don't respond, they figure it out. Right. Right. And so the other thing that's really important about what we talk about in craft is that that I think that a lot of the loved ones believe that they're superheroes. It's a problem. OK, that you see yourself as God or this I'm having amazing ability to save somebody else's life which to me makes you a superhero because this person, if you don't respond well, they could die. And that might be a true statement, but the fact that you believe that you're the person that's going to prevent their death is the part that's distorted because we're not that powerful. And so, so what happens is that the work that we have to do is to really get more right-sized and see ourselves as just another person on this other person's path and that you don't have as much influence as you think, especially right. if you're aggressively trying to change that. Or, or actually, so, so I have a, a little bit of a different perspective. I, okay. I, I do agree with you. I do agree with you that um, I, so I wanted to be the person that could save him, but I knew I wasn't, I wasn't capable of that. Um, and I would fantasize about it. I would fantasize about 
maybe I could buy an island and I could drop him off there, right, with food, and, right? You know, just totally crazy. And I knew that they were, that these are not realistic. I, I knew, but I wanted with every ounce of me to be able to do that. But I knew, I knew, I knew there was, I was not going to be able to do it. Um, I, I also think that, and you have taught, you've already alluded to a few things um, here, and that is, as human beings, we are, we naturally awfulize everything, catastrophize everything, and these are our children, and we're talking about life or death right now. So, you know, as, as a mom, I would do anything. I would do anything to save him. So if a doctor came to me and said, I, could, I will totally make him happy for the rest of his life, but I need to take this very dull bladed ax and hack off your right arm, I would have said, here, hack right. it off, do right. it, right? Um, and knowing logically inside of my brain that that would never work, right? That that would never work. but. My understanding now is all that energy and all that power in the negative things that I was doing, right? Meaning um, catastrophizing, awfulizing, being demanding, you know, trying to force him. He has to do what I want him to do because these things will save his life. If I could take and put that much energy into and this is going to be some craft or allies and recovery language into um positive things so like reinforcing positive behavior instead of accidentally reinforcing negative behavior right so if i can enable drug use then i must be able to do the opposite which is enable uh non-use and if I can go ahead and focus on that instead of putting all of my energy into these things that aren't working well, mind you, I, right? And I had to keep asking myself over and over, is, that, is this working? If I do this again for the hundredth time, right? right am I going to get different results? Probably right. not. So change it. Do something right. but else. I, and I think, I think what's interesting about that is... Um, that you're do by reinforcing the positive, by the way, all psychology is about that coming from that orientation. Even if you look at the, the substance use um, treatment before, it used to be very punitive because they, the idea was that you were gonna take somebody apart and put them back together. Right. Um, and that doesn't work. And they found out that that doesn't work because people, a lot of times people who are dealing with, with issues of addiction have a lot of pain inside of them and they're already broken. So the last thing you want to do is make them feel worse about themselves. So this whole focus on the positive, which by the way, is, is the most important thing for all of us psychologically. It's the treatment for depression. It's the treatment for anxiety is look, being grateful, looking for the positive, trying to create good connection. And that's also another thing that, that is the new um, theory about addiction is that it, that people feel disconnected. So, so what happens is every time you go for a connection, which is not about 20 questions like, where'd you go? Who do we with? Blah, blah, blah. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, oh, it's just so nice just sitting here and having coffee with you. 
Like it's literally, I call it my my terminology is you're fine, you're creating a positivity detective that that literally you're you're looking at every possible lead that you can to give some positive feedback. Right. And by doing and you it's an absolute, it's so unnatural for us, especially when we're catastrophizing, but it's actually the treatment for ourselves. And it also helps the other person because it's almost like saying to the person, like, you know, I know that that you're going to figure it out and you just need to let me know. Let me know when you need help. That's different than I'm going to help you. Now a short pause for a word from our partner, Allies in Recovery. Is your loved one resistant to getting treatment? Are you hitting a wall when you try to communicate with them or offer them help? Is your own mental or physical health deteriorating? The CRAFT method, which we teach on our e-learning platform, was designed to address these very challenges. A membership with Allies in Recovery gives you unlimited access to a library of learning videos, ebooks, and worksheets, as well as in-house expert guidance tailored to your situation. Visit alliesinrecovery.net today. The other thing is people like, oh, you know, of course I'm going to spend $50,000 and take it out of my retirement to send this person to treatment. And I always say, no, don't do it. No, that person says to you, I'm ready. I want to go to treatment. Let me, I will do whatever I can do. And they already exhaust every possibility of how they're going to get there. And then you support them because they're really into it. You are going away. You're retired. I, I totally agree. Yeah. And I actually... Um, do a lot of this work, Kayla, where I connect family members to resources for their loved one. And I, I when people, when people are like, well, he's got to go away or he's got to go to Florida. And I'm like, is he asking, is he asking to do that? You know, because if he's not, oh, you know, waste of money, you know, you're, you're really could be throwing a lot of money down the toilet you know, yeah, maybe some of it's going to stick, but it would be so much better if we could get your loved one to say, I need help, and then tell you what it is that they would like exactly. help with, you know. Even they'll do the research for what they want to do. It's not like they don't have access. Everybody's got the internet. People will come to you and say, well, I looked at this program, or or you send them down to look, and if they're looking, then you know that they're interested. Right. But, you know, so many times parents will set up a, or, or loved ones will set up an appointment and drive them there. It's like, no, oh, right. don't do that because it's a waste. I will. I'll drive you there. If if you're if you need if you're asking me, I'm not going to right. if you're going, oh, I got to get to this. I got to. Oh, I'll try and support you. But I'm not. But yeah. And I, I'll be honest with you. That's actually how a lot of the stuff um, craft started in my house. Um, when my son was really, he was, he was not even close to recovery at the time and he was living with us. And, um, I had made it clear, look, if you can't, you can't be using opioids when you're here. I, I can't, I'll go crazy. It's not safe for me and your father. It's not safe for you. So if you're using, um, you know, here, I, we'll have some options lined up. And then of course he used, 
and I brought it to him and said, what do you, you know, what do you want to do? You could, here's some options for you. We'll support you, whatever, you know, but here you go make the phone calls. You, you figure out what you want to do. Let me know. And he did. It, he did. And it, it took multiple attempts. It, it wasn't like he went off and, you know, and he came back and everything was, in fact, he actually ended up moving back home eventually. Um, and he went into recovery while he was living with us. But everything, every, every boundary we set up, everything, it was, no, you're going to be the one doing the work. You're going to be making the phone calls. You know, it, if he had a relapse, it was like, okay, well, what are you going to do now? What do you need to do to, you know, do what kind of uh, to prevent this from happening? Or how do you want to move forward? And, and we only supported what he wanted to do. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, if you think about this, I, I, the expression I use is you give your loved one the dignity of their own process. And so, so what happens is that if you're trying to do it for them, you're assuming that they're not strong enough or, good enough to do it. And that is a terrible message to give somebody. Right. And I'm so glad you said that because I talk about this in, in rest meetings that, um, that we as family members, one, we think we're setting up boundaries and we're really not, we're setting up rules right. and regulations so that we can punish and give consequences and boundaries. I keep saying, no boundaries are something totally different. It's all about you. And it's all about your behavior and what your behavior is going to be. So we got to think about what are you going to do if, because they're your boundaries, you got to hold up those boundaries. Your, your loved one probably isn't going to hold them up for you. <laughs> right? So, but also we are so focused on our needs that we're not listening to the other person's boundaries. Right. right. right? So when my son is saying, get out of my room, and I'm like, no, I'm not following his boundary. I'm mm -hmm. not, right? And, and also kind of like what you said, if I don't let him get in the driver's seat of his recovery or actually his life, because it isn't just recovery, it's, you know, whether he's going to go to college, what kind of a job he's going to have, you know, uh, if I don't let him get in the driver's seat and make those decisions for himself, I often have said that, really what message am I sending him? I'm basically exactly. saying to him, you know what? I don't believe you can do it. Exactly, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. I don't trust you. And the, and the problem is that they already don't trust themselves because I, they've broken their own word a thousand times. They wanna get clean and they haven't been able to do it. So they don't believe themselves. So by us reinforcing that, they don't have a ground to stand on. So to me, and it's interesting because I'm my 15, my 16 year old is learning how to drive. So it's a great analogy because I'm in the car and there are times I'm like, okay, I put my foot through the window because, you know, I want to break, but I have to allow her to actually, you know, see what it's like to pull out and not get hit or get hit or whatever. And I can't, I can't do it. I'm not, I don't have a another wheel that I'm turning or a brake that I'm doing. And I have to trust her when I'm letting her drive my car. Right. And it's scary and dangerous. And yes, it's my life is threatened and so is hers. But it, in order for her to build up confidence, she has to go out and make mistakes. It's the same way with recovery. I don't know anybody who got clean on the first shot. It's like right. people go and they learn things and they try things and then they fail and then they go again. And we don't know what the 
the magic bullet is about when somebody's going to get it or not. So our job is to support people in their process and not be invested in whatever the outcome is and not get upset if they fail. And, and the most important thing that I want people to know is the mistake theory, okay? I do not believe in mistakes, okay, at all. I don't think anything is a mistake. I think people try things and it doesn't work out. You hope that they learn from everything that they do I, and, and including us. So even if you're learning how to practice the craft modules and do these things, you're not gonna get it on the first try. There's no way in hell. I, I teach um, Imago relationship therapy, which is a way of listening, which is basically mirroring everything that people says. And, and by the way, it's the best de-escalation you could possibly do. Yep. And that's what we do in the group a lot. We talk about if somebody starts to talk and they're upset, you just repeat back what they said. Wow, it sounds like you're really mad because I'm not gonna give you a ride tonight. Tell me more about that. And you let the person keep talking and then you repeat back what they say. And, and what happens is that the most important part of that kind of um, communication is there's a piece called validation where you make sense about, you tell them why they make sense. It totally makes sense to me that you wanna go out right now and you're furious at me because I don't wanna drive you. Of course you're mad at me. You wanna go out, I'm saying no, of course you're mad. It makes total sense that you would be angry right. at me. But I'm not gonna like, feel like I'm- Doesn't mean you're agreeing, right, right, no, exactly. I'm, I'm like, of course you're mad. I knew that, you, I'm not gonna say, I knew you were gonna be mad, it's just, of course you're mad. It makes complete sense that you want to go out and I'm saying no and you're furious with me. I and get you're it. a human being. Yeah. And But but the, part of the work is to not be a sponge, okay? That right. you do not want to be a sponge for this person's upset because part of what's happening is they don't have the tools that they need to look at themselves. So everything is outside of them, which is why they use substances in the first place right. because it's an outside factor that makes them feel better i also think we do that yeah. even without right we do that a, a lot um and i hear i hear this like even in in meetings and groups from other from other family members i'll hear things like um you know but he wants this and he's he's saying that or he's or she is um she's putting that on me and and i'm like are we mind reading <laughs> you know i'm like we don't we don't know that we don't know what's going on inside of the other person's mind right and um your feelings like i we talk about this too that actually your feelings are your feelings for you to deal with right right and and i i often will use this analogy of um of uh um what's it called empty nest syndrome i'm like you know my daughters and my son actually he also you know i have three children and they all went off to college and when they went off and it was just my husband and i and we were left alone i got very weepy and you know i got i got weepy and down and it was like you know i'm not <laughs> i'm not mom anymore or i'm not you know, that's Mrs. McDougall, or that's Kristen's mom, or, right, I'm not that anymore, and I have to find a new identity, and, right, and, um, and I missed my children, and, you know, and I would call them and talk to them, but I certainly didn't call them up and go, 
you know what? I've got really bad empty nest syndrome. I think you need to soothe me. So you need to drop out of college and come on home, right? And and I think that um, when our loved ones go off to treatment or they go off and they do something, we often are experiencing empty nest syndrome on a on a steroid level, mind you, but. And that's why, like a lot of families, I, I see will call them up. So how was the, how was your meeting with your counselor? Did you have a good meeting? Did you have, how is it going? Da, da, da. I want to know. I want to know. I want to. And it's like no, you know, now's the time for you to go and work on you, right? And your new identity, <laughs> right? And I call it comfort and chaos because everything was chaotic before. And we're not used to it not being that way right um as much as we hated it right and it brought up these difficult feelings we're not used to having this Ooh. yeah but also how many times do we hear people saying they're in treatment i know that they're having a hard time i know that they need this i know and it's like back off right it's about i always like to think of treatment as like this vision quest where you're going off on your own into this scary and dark place where you have to find yourself. And right. then, so while your loved one is in treatment, if you're doing that same process where you're looking at who am I, what do I like, what do I want? And by the way, if you are a loved one, if somebody has been using substances, what do I want and what do I need and what do I like are not in your vocabulary. Right. More, what do I have to do right now? Right. You are listening to Coming Up for Air, sponsored in part by alliesinrecovery.net. Here is a testimonial from an Allies member. This is Allies in Recovery member GP Traveler. When I read posts like, she's back from rehab but on shaky ground, I feel hopeful for the plan I am working. And it all boils down to love for my loved one and myself. Thanks to our partner, alliesinrecovery.net. Now back to coming up for air. So that's the first order is, what do I like? What do I want? What do I need right now? And that once that becomes your priority and, and you're taking care of yourself from that foundational place, you are so much better at interacting with your loved one. Because right. you're not looking for something from them. Right, which is exactly what Naranon and Alanon is trying to get you right. to. They're trying to get, if you are taking care of yourself, right. you have to be in that kind of a position, which is going to bring us to actually our next podcast recording, because we are going to talk about um, uh, this subject, I think, a little bit more. Okay. Um, so, but yeah, but it just kind of all comes back to you need to be taking care of yourself. Yeah, and, and, right, and, and I think Al-Anon and Naranon are incredibly focused on that piece of it. And I think craft kind of, um, it is focused on that, but it gives you a structure, skills, coping skills in order to do what Al-Anon is, is saying you should do. And it also has this added element of you can also interact and have influence. Of course, you're going to have influence if you are changing things up. Just that alone is going to force everybody in the family, not just your loved one with substance use disorder, it's going to change everybody's behavior in the picture. But that's why I call that the power position, 
because everybody thinks that they're so powerful by asking a thousand questions and being hyper vigilant and watching everything and making sure nobody gets hurt. That's that's just leads you to this feeling of hopelessness and lack of control. To me, that's the real powerlessness. But if you are looking at yourself and learning about yourself and then being conscious before you speak and engaging in a much more conscious way, which by the way, I'm going to say it again, takes practice. Yes, but once you start practicing it, it's like, you know, it, it actually feels wonderful. Yeah. Like you have a conversation, like the, the conversation with your son where it doesn't matter what it, how he felt about it. It matters right. how you felt about it. You like just took your power back and dissipated this terrible situation. Right. And you know, the, the other thing about it, um, the other thing about it, you kind of bring up a really good point is in that conversation with my son, um, I wasn't really worried about, I wasn't worried about what the impact on him was going to be. I knew that the impact was going to be good. It was going to be difficult to get through. It was going to be volatile in the moment, yep. but I knew on the other side of it, I was doing something that was right not only for myself, but for him. Right. Right. And, and it was like, no, I, I felt incredibly confident and about it and having success made me even more confident that I needed to do more of this right. to get to where I needed to be. Right. Um, and, and I think that's true for all of this is that the practice of it is the most important part of it because people think they're supposed to get it right away that none of this works that way. It's no. like you come, up, you come up with an idea of how you're going to try to do things differently. And what you said was really very important, which is you tried to slow things down so you could think. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times loved ones are not thinking before they speak. They're just reacting. And right. that's the most difficult position that you're putting yourself in because then you're in an argument and you're having to justify and you're looking for data or reasons. And, you know, to me, the data is ridiculous. Like people say, well, how do you do a substance abuse assessment? It's like, I know when people come in and I'm doing a, that people are lying to me. Of course. You know, and it's interesting because there was this HBO documentary and they, I think it was, they were doing it for allies in recovery and they show this in one of the trainings, but I was seeing the loved one, the substance using loved one. And I had seen him once and I asked him the question um, when he came in, I said, so how's it going? He goes, great. I'm like, have, have you been using? He goes, I haven't used it all since I saw you last. Okay. And I just busted up laughing so hard. I can't even tell you. I literally was hysterical. I couldn't even talk because I was laughing so hard. And then I was like, I'm like, oh my God, I'm that good. It's like, you just have to walk into my office and you're miraculously cured and you're fine. And, and what happened was I said, I said, I just want you to know, if you're coming in to see me, you tell me what you think I want to hear makes me feel insane. I said, I need the truth because I cannot help you if you're not telling me the truth because then we don't have any foundation to work with. There's no trust. I don't trust you. I don't believe you. So I'm going to ask you again. When's the last time you used it? He said, 20 minutes ago. I'm like, thank you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, I wonder, Kayla, is that, um, were you in that, the HBO thing. Yeah, yeah. I saw it. I I did a training with Bob Myers and he showed it and and I saw that clip. I yeah. saw that exact clip and it's like, yeah, she's absolutely right. It was like, you're kidding me. And the thing is, and I, I thought, okay, I should be embarrassed. I'm an addiction counselor and I, you know, I've lost my cookies in this thing. 
But that's exactly what I would do in real life. But it also made sense, right? And it also, it wasn't done in a way that like shamed him or anything like that. It was done very, oh, come on, right? You can, you can tell me anything, right? right. Like, I'm, wow. I'm not going to judge you. But I'm sure I said, I, I'm that good that you just walk in one time and you, and you don't yeah, yeah. anymore. <laughs> I know I said that because, and part of what, the reason that people like me is that I kind of have this version of Tourette's where it's like, if somebody comes in with an addiction and they tell me something, I just laugh a lot of times, you know, because it's like, come on, you know, and then uh, just tell me the truth because I really want to work with you. And it's unbelievable what people tell me. Right. Don't judge them. And I don't assume that they're all there. I'm like, if you're here to see me, you're here because you have a problem. And if, right. you're, if you're coming in, I don't assume that you're going to be fine in 10 minutes. And right. that's what people need to know is just because somebody goes to therapy and treatment, that doesn't presume that they're going to get what they need that first time around. Right. <clears throat> right. <clears throat> right. And, and you bring up um, some really good points too, because I hear this a lot from parents. You don't understand. He goes into the therapist's office and he tells him this, this, and this, and I don't know if what the therapist, but, and I'm like, trust me, <laughs> the therapist knows that they've got to, they've got to kind of weed out, you know, what's, what's real, what's not real. They know they're trained. So, you know, so just go with it for a while, right. um, you know, <clears throat> but well, know that our real work, my real work is not as with people with substance use issues is not to get them to stop using. It's to find the thing inside of themselves that's making them want to use in the first place. Right. That's, that's my work. It's not right. like, oh, you need to stop this second. But then we talk about how their use affects their life. Right. And, you know, it's funny because people say, well, I'm not an actor. I'm like, I don't, I don't use that word. All I want to know is has that substance caused problems in your life? Right. And then if the answer is yes, then you have a problem with that substance. Right. And how are we going to, how can we move you to a spot? So where you want to be. Exactly. And remember, right? it's the same issue with loved ones as it is with people who are users, is that they have a massive amount of information. Right. Okay. I very rarely am teaching anybody anything about addiction or substance use. They already know. And they will come in and tell me, I know plenty. I've been in treatment a thousand times. So I, my, my response to them and to the people in the group are, you guys are the expert. You know a lot right. about all of this stuff from many different places. You guys should be teaching the classes. But the question is, what's the gap between knowing and doing? Right. And that's where the work comes in, is how do you translate what you know to how to make that happen? Right, right. And that's what I love about craft is it actually feels like this roadmap for working through different issues, right. getting past it and practicing and practicing and practicing. Right. And it's flexible. That's the, the, the other thing is it's flexible. It's, you can still use this framework in, so, in all situations, yeah. right? And, and what's a solution for me and my family might not be the same solution that another family comes to, right? Um, right? So that's what, I, that's what I like a lot about, um, about craft. Right, um, and there's no right answer. There's no right. right answer. There's just what's the next right thing for you to do and don't be invested in the outcome. Right. And and I tell, um, and you've kind of talked about this already, but I tell everybody in the rest meetings when we're doing craft, remember, 
you're looking for a 70% success rate, not 100%, and 70% success rate, and you're being able to do whatever it is that you're trying to do, and a 70% success rate that it's gonna that it's gonna unfold in uh, in a in a direction that you want it to, and even if it doesn't unfold into the direction that you want, it may end up being a better direction anyway. Right. So right so. We're not looking for perfection. And I, I've also found um, when I started implementing craft, it didn't take a lot of, of craft. It wasn't like I had to do it 100% of the time, all the time. All I needed was like two or three times and I really changed a lot of what was, what was happening. Right, and I think I think what we need to make really clear, Lori, is that the seventy percent is not necessarily about what the substance use is. Right. It's about seventy percent change in the relationship. Right, and seventy percent of the time, I'm going to be successful in implementing craft. Your way, right? It's you, and that's the point. Right. It's about you. It's not about what the other person does. Right. That's the key because I'm so afraid that people are going to hear like. Oh, the substance abuse. The substance user is going to only use seventy percent of the time, or they're no, not. And I, right, and I'm not even talking about that. It's I'm about not, right, but I'm not. I'm not even talking about use or anything like that. Even, even when I talk about like the outcome of, of, um, of craft, I'm actually talking more about my communication with my loved one. You know the decisions my loved one's going to make about, you know, or, or even that they'll even consider something that I might have to say, right? So I'm not even talking about substance use at, um, at this point. About, does, does he listen to you when you speak? Are you having an engagement? And, and the, the two words that I use for good communication are curiosity and fascination. And I do not mean how much did you use? Where'd you go? Who'd you right. use? It's more like, well, how are you doing? And it's like, ah, I'm depressed. Oh, tell me more about that. Right. And then you have this real conversation with the person and you don't jump in and give them feedback or tell them what you need to tell them. You just keep, let them, the more they talk, the closer they're going to feel with you. Right. You want somebody to feel disconnected and, and not close to you is you tell them you want to have a conversation and then you don't let them talk. Right. Well, we have this whole thing in rest. I'm like every everything that we talk about with communication and I'm always like and leave your two cents out of it <laughs> leave your two cents in your pocket that's right just leave your two cents out of it don't no matter how tempted you are to put it in there leave it out <laughs> yeah no and that's the problem is we think we're brilliant but this is the knowing and doing part it's like right. you all the right answers but who are they right for right and that's right. why, you know, the power is not in the knowing the right thing to do for the other person. It's knowing, getting to know what's right for you. And that's where the boundaries come in also. It's like, there, there's going to be a point. It's like, I cannot take more of whatever this behavior is from this person. And right. that becomes the boundary. It's like, and so one of the ways I like to phrase it is, um, you get you get to make a choice based on your behavior. I will be making a decision about blah blah blah. So I I don't really want to live with this behavior, but based on your decision with that behavior, I have to make a choice because I can't do this anymore. Right. So you have right. to make a choice about how you're going to behave and what you're going to do. Right. And I back to the dignity part. Right. And we we talk about boundaries a lot in rest meetings and. 
And I'm like, it's this concept of the boundary is driving your behavior. So you have to think about what are you going to do if the person steps over that boundary? Right. It's not how am I going to punish them? I'm going right. to take the car away or I'm going to do It's not that it's, you know, I, and I, I often will use an example of like my, you know, my son would start calling me names and getting louder and really verbally abusing me and stuff. And it would be like, you know what? I need some space right now. So I'm, you know, and I, I, I always do this thing because my son feels like when I, when I separate from him, um, he feels abandoned. Yep. And right. So I always say, look, you know, what you have to say is important to me, but right now for me, this is too heated. I'm going to go upstairs. We can come back later at a different time and we can talk about it later so that he knows I'm not abandoning you. I do care about what you have to say, but I'm not going to be treated like this. Right. <laughs> right? I, I'm just, I'm not going to. And, and, uh, and we're going to stop. Um, and to me, it's like, so see, that is the boundary. I'm setting my boundary and it's determining what my behavior is going to be. And I'm not staying in this conversation right now. I'm and not it's doing caring. It. It's like what I say to my daughter is, you know, I really want, wanted to hear what you have to say, but I can't hear it in the way that you're saying it. So this is not fruitful. So let's take a break. We'll come back. And I want to hear that what you have to say, but I can't hear it this way. Yeah. So take yeah. a break and we'll talk later. I really want to hear it. But, but, the, but it's exactly what you said is I really want to hear it, but not this way. Right. And then right. what it happens is the name calling is the heat. It's not the actual content. Right. Right. And, and also letting him know that I, that I am more than willing to discuss it, I think helps him to understand that, no, I'm not abandoning you. I'm not pushing you away. And, um, and it is important. It's important enough that I will address it. I'm just not going to be treated like this, you know, exactly. exactly. you know, but well, okay, we have really, we kind of, we, we talked for a long time. So this was great. This is a great conversation. And um, we've definitely got to schedule another uh, podcast. Um, I have a feeling you and I could go on and on for a very long time. Yeah. And it's really kind of cool that I saw you in that HBO special. And now I know who, I was like, oh my gosh, that yeah, was her. Nice. <laughs> oh, I'm with a star right now. <laughs> So, um, so I'd like to um, let everybody know, all of the listeners out there uh, know that if you want to check out Kayla's group, you can access her group through the Allies in Recovery website. Just um, go into resources, resource supplement, scroll down to online supports, and actually uh, for online supports for family and friends. And uh, Kayla Solomon's group is in there Wednesday nights, 6.30 From Eastern. From 6.30 to 7.30. And Eastern time. But the other thing to keep in mind is if it's possible, come on with your, with your video because it really makes a difference to be able to see you and to be able to see everybody else. It's really hard when people are just doing audio. Yeah, yeah. We have, I have the same, same issue <clears throat> in rest as well. And I agree with you. It's, it's much easier when you can see one another, but yeah. well, thank you. Supportive group. And also it's a big group. So be prepared to listen more than anything. <laughs> well,
Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on today. And um, cannot wait to speak with you again. Okay. Take care, Lori. Thank you. Thank you, Kayla. Happy New Year. Bye. You too. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, our production team, and Mikael Mouboussin for the original music composition.